Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Craig, we talk a lot about environmental issues in the state. We tend to focus on the natural beauty, places like Mayaka River State Park or the Everglades or the Florida Springs or our our wonderful wild animals like the panther and the alligator and and the manatee. But in your Florida Phoenix column this week, floridaphoenix.com, you get into a a nitty-gritty piece of legislation that has an extraordinary influence on conservation uh, the natural habitat, animals, wildlife, and, and, and the environment in Florida. And, and people, most people don't know anything about it. Most people have never mm-hmm. heard of it. And what sort of stirred me to write about this is that I heard all this debate about changing the state bird. Should we change the state bird? Should we get away from the mockingbird? Should we pick, you know, the osprey or the scrubgee or something like that? And I thought, well, why not do something more substantive and take after the state BERT, which is the BERT-Harris Act, which basically kind of ties the hand of local government anytime they want to try and do something to protect the environment from a developer. And this this law was passed supposedly to enhance property rights for the poor beleaguered you know, farmers and ranchers and so forth. But in, in effect, since it was passed in 1995, it's become a, a, a big cudgel mm-hmm. in the hands of developers who anytime they want to exceed the density in the comp plan or, you know, wipe out lots of wetlands or build on the water side of the mean high water line and local government resists because, you know, the course constituents don't like it. The developers say, well, then I'll just hit you with a bird Harris act. Sure. Let they me can. give you a, a, a concrete example from where I live on Amelia Island. Amelia Island is an Island, but part of it is under the city of Fernandina beach jurisdiction. Part of it is under Nassau County jurisdiction. The city of Fernandina beach building codes restrict height to three stories, four stories. There are some grandfathered in, but you come to Amelia Island and it's low density and it's chill, unlike Daytona or Panama City because of these zoning ordinances and and building codes. Well, Nassau County does not have the same codes and a developer wants to come onto Amelia Island, but in the Nassau County portion of Amelia Island and build like an eight-story a condo tower, which would totally blow up the density, destroy traffic. Uh, They'd have to build all kinds of roads. It would be massively expensive because you'd have to take uh, city sewer and all of the the services out there. Plus, it would destroy the aesthetic of the island, which is not Daytona Beach or Panama City or uh, Miami Beach. But the county, in trying to go back and uh, amend its building codes and zoning ordinance is being threatened with Burt Harris action because the developer, the property owner is saying, hey, you're taking away my right to make money. You know, forget that this has no business on an island like Amelia Island. Right. Forget that the, the citizens don't want it here. They, like you say, because the developers are always going to have better, more expensive uh, lawyers essentially use Burt Harris as a boogeyman and the threat of litigation to make these largely cowardly county commissions back down and give them yeah. whatever they want. And and the result being it, it not only has an actual effect, because a lot of times these developers will file Burt Harris 
uh, lawsuits, which and the, the, the law is written incredibly vague to provide for yeah. almost any sort of damage or, or take, as you say, to, to qualify against it, but also just the threat, the chilling effect of potential litigation with these very well-funded developers is often enough to scare off city or county commissions from even attempting uh, to, to challenge their right to build with utterly unsustainable and, and unwanted growth for the, the local right. areas they're in. Well, and even even if they do stick to their guns, like the, city, the town of Ponce Inlet dug in and said, we're not going to cave. And the lawsuit that followed took more than 10 years cost them millions of dollars and you know that so they won ultimately but it was kind of a hollow triumph because it cost them so much money well so you know it's one of the you know we can talk about developers and the governor or you know whoever we want but the burt harris uh law is one of those nitty-gritty sort of factors that exist in florida to really stack the deck in the favor of development and business and industry against uh, municipalities, against home rule, against nature, against environment, against sensible growth. Uh, FloridaPhoenix.com, if you want to learn more, it's it's really one of those, it's almost wonky and and, and policy-ish, but it is the devil's in the details. It's outrageous and it's costing you money as as a Florida taxpayer. From Bert Harris to Tim Dorsey. Tim Dorsey, a much more uh, convivial and enjoyable yes. person to talk about than, than Bert Harris. Uh, who's Tim Dorsey, Craig? Uh, Tim Dorsey has written 24 uh, novels about a, uh, a serial killer, or as he prefers to call himself, a sequential killer named Serge Storms, who is obsessed with Florida and Florida history and Florida culture and travels around the state uh, with his perpetually stoned companion, Coleman. Uh, where he uh, is doing further research on Florida, but also writing various wrongs. He's sort of a sort of a vigilante angel that people don't know exists, and then suddenly he does. And uh, uh, when his first book came out, Florida Roadkill, somebody described it as as if Hunter Thompson and Groucho Marx shared a byline, which is a, I think is a pretty mm-hmm. accurate description of how funny these books are. T- I've known Tim for quite a while. We actually bumped into each other at a celebration of John D. McDonald's birthday. Oh, wow. In Sarasota, wow. uh, where the the library there was putting up a big uh, uh, plaque commemorating his 100th anniversary of, of his birth, so uh, he's he's a really he's one of those rare people who is as funny on the page as he is in real life. Well, and you've and got a, you've got a funny uh, Tim Dorsey story from a book event, don't you? Uh, oh yes, yes, yes. I, you're right. I should have mentioned this. Normally at at uh, at the Times Festival of Reading. The authors get up, they might read a little bit or they might talk a little bit and they'll talk for like 30 minutes and then they'll answer questions for 15 minutes. And then whoever it is that introduces them, and in this case, it was me introducing Tim, you're supposed to then wind things up, thank everybody for coming and then take the author out to where he signs books. Well, I introduced Tim and sat down in the front row to kind of keep time. Tim talks for maybe five minutes, tells this long involved story about how he (laughs) broke into the air conditioning system of of the motel he was staying at and all, so that he can alter the the temperature a story by might add that later showed up in one of his novels winds up the story by showing off his cell phone and the the temperature he finally got it down to and, picture, and yeah. shouted shouted an obscene saying that you know and then literally dropped the mic and walked out <laughs> and we're all sitting there going wait is he coming back what 
and he didn't come back. And so I ran out to figure out what had happened to him. He was already at the book signing table. He said, I've always wanted to do a mic drop. I, I figured that was a good venue to do it. <laughs> TimDorsey.com. You can find his books anywhere online or in person where you get them. Try and find them at a uh, local independent bookseller. He's also part of the Miami Book Fair this year. Yes. And you can yes. uh, Google Miami Book Fair for more information on how to find Tim and Craig and uh, everything else that's going on with the Miami Book Fair. So without further ado, Tim Dorsey. So Tim, I have to ask you, what's it like walking around all the time with a serial killer in your head? <laughs> uh, that that preceded the books for many years. <laughs> I think that's a condition of living in Florida. Um, I've said to people before, they ask about, you know, especially when I'm out of state, talking about books and just, you know, what's it like down there? And I'm like, uh, simultaneously, I feel crazy to keep living here, and I, and, but I, I, yet I couldn't live anywhere else. Uh, I mean, I love it just so much. And uh, the books, it's almost like cheating because I just I go around in life and I'm, I'm one of those people that keeps things inside. If you kind of bump up against a rude person or just somebody who's just not being, uh, not behaving properly according to the social contract. And I don't get mixed up in them. You know, it, it's foolish to entangle your life with some you know, loser. But you walk away and it kind of burns in your stomach. You know? And so, I just a little hamster starts turning in my head about what I'd like to do to him. And uh, I've made a living off it now. <laughs> well, you're up to uh, the 25th book is being published. Uh, is it later this year, or early next year? Yeah, January. I think it's the 25th that comes out. Amazing. Amazing. When you wrote the first one in 1999, you were still working at the, at the Tampa Tribune at the time, right? That's correct. I was still working there. I was moonlighting uh, and it was, that's the kind of the crucible you have to get through is having your regular job and then you know, try to crank something out and get published. Now, a lot of famous writers, they'll, you know, they'll write that their first few books. And then when they succeed, then they quit. But you quit almost immediately. Right. Why right. did you do that? Because um, newspapers paid just above the poverty level. So it, really was no, <laughs> it was really no big uh, risk or choice. I didn't want to like, you know, just tentatively just put a toe in the water as far as first book out. When it got out, the publisher asked me to do a tour. And so I said, well, let's be just going to, you know, go full guns, you know, in marketing, you know, on the first book. And, and I already written my second book because it took a while for it to come out. So before the first book had come out, I'd written the second because it was a two book contract. And so mm -hmm. I had, the, I had the, the next one, you know, already in the stable. I would have been more worried about keeping my job uh, <laughs> because then, you know, one of these chances only comes around usually only once in a lifetime. If that it's already by like a thousand one shot. So I figured, you know, I, I don't want to like dilute my efforts on the first book, you know, getting it, the, getting it exposed. How did your journalism background and, and you were a reporter journalist for nearly 20 years in the eighties and nineties, how did that help your fiction writing it, a lot of people think you know it might be a, a challenge to shift over from nonfiction to fiction but in in this case not only did it help but it was absolutely essential i never would have been able to do this because it uh these are a lot of the writers that i like i mean it, day in and day out you had to write for your regular job anyway and so the actual craft of writing you know sort of made it you know second nature and then you just had to come up with 
plots and and you know storylines and imagination from there. But uh, yeah, you have to write tight. I mean, you know, Craig, you know this stuff. So you come into your editor, you know, after being out, you know, uh, reporting and some stuff, and I go, oh, this story is fantastic. It's got all the elements. It's get you know, you, you can really play it big and. And I'll say, well, how, how, how much do you need? And I go, I need at least uh, 20 column inches. And they go, you got seven. So you got <laughs> you got I mean, you know, it, it drives you nuts, but you have to really get it compact. And that's why uh, a lot of my you know favorite authors have been uh, had newspaper background. You know, you can see it in the writing because it's 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 really tight. You know, it's you know, it's almost like a, a quick movie. You know, there's no wasted you know, parts or big purple prose or, or whatever. I was reading a, uh, an interview where you, you revealed that you had actually killed Surge Storms off in one of the early drafts of Florida Roadkill, your first book. What made you decide not to? Uh, Thank I, heavens I wanted, you did. <laughs> I, I wanted to uh, have a series. I wanted to, you know, make a living at it. It was the first mm-hmm. time I'm thinking, ah, I'm just going to do this. The, the reason I wrote the first book was... And this is my motivation when I sat down and got started was, you know, it's like, you know, I had my first child and she was in a playpen and I've always wanted to do this. And I said, if you don't, you know, and it's always been the reason why I went to journalism. And I said, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. You know, you're going to have family coming up and there's just more excuses and this and that. And I mainly, I did it so, so that, that, you know, toward, you know, years and years later in retirement, I wouldn't look back filled with regret that I never gave it a shot. So I just I went at it like crazy. I felt I was just doing it, like I said, not to have regret later, as, not as much as the fact that I thought I would get published. I didn't think I was going to get published. I just, I'm going to give it the best shot. And then I'll say, you know, just for my own satisfaction. So I was writing what I thought would be one book. And then I figured even if I do get published, <clears throat> that that'll be it, you know, in, in, That'll that'll be a dream come true. I mean, I'll have a book with my name on the cover. <laughs> I can put up on my bookshelf, and maybe I'll get some money to pay down credit card bills or make a couple car payments or something. And it worked out. But when I was wrapping it up, I'm like, you know, I can't. can't I killed everybody off. I mean, every Coleman was dead. Serge was dead. I mean, it was a bloodbath. It was just. <laughs> and so I, uh, I I brought Serge back. And then in the next couple of people, you know, toward everything and said, oh, too bad you got rid of Coleman. People started saying, you know, you can bring it back. You know, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like they do it all the time and other things, you know. And so, well, I regretted killing them off because I didn't know that a series that would, you know, take off mm-hmm. and have some, well, you know, searching someone to talk to, too. I mean, he's the perfect stone companion to, <laughs> for Serge's many monologues. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's a perfect foil. They need a foil for the conversation. And these are some demented conversations. Like Serge is, oh, yeah. you know, hy- hyper intelligent and he's just hyper period. And Coleman is just like, like if you travel cross country, like very few people could, you know, tolerate Serge. You drive me nuts. And, and the only people who can handle it is if they're self-medicated, which is Coleman. <laughs> but when I, when I did bring him back a um, few books later, and this is right at the beginning of the book. So, uh, but Serge is like uh, walking, he's walking somewhere and he passes a doorway and he hears a familiar laugh and he sticks his head in and, and he says, uh, it's Coleman. And Coleman goes, 
oh, hey, Serge, you know, long time no see, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then <laughs> stop, stop. I can't believe I, you're alive. I mean, I saw your body. You're dead. Everybody knows you're dead. And Coleman says, yeah, that's the funniest thing. But there's a weird story behind that. And then he goes to this, like, long-winded, tortured, logic, you know, convoluted explanation about why he's alive in the middle of it. Serge says, you know, time out. This like sounds like some hokey plot device when they regretted killing off a character. And Coleman says, "Yeah, it, that would be bad writing, but this is reality." <laughs> we are fortunate enough to talk to a lot of authors, a lot of fiction authors on the podcast, and I'm, I'm sure more than one of our listeners has taken a stab at, at writing a novel and, and thought about going down that road you've been on of ditching the the day job and writing. What separates the folks from yourself who are able to get published from the the vast majority more who start something, maybe even finish something, but are never able to have that work be published? What, yeah. What advice would you give to a, to a new someone who wants to be you or wants to do what you do? Other than don't, I mean, <laughs> go, go all in. I mean, go all in with both feet and you know, don't. Main thing is don't. Don't jump ahead. In other words, I I actually was trying to. Uh, I started the first pieces of this book about ten years before, and they're just little pieces, and I just kept putting it off and, and said, felt I wasn't ready yet. But I mean, I could have written this this book, you know, much earlier. But it you mean been, that, which one, Tropic of Stupid, or the next the one? First one, the very first one, first one. how I got published. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'd say if somebody's trying to do this. Um, what I did is I was really hard on myself. So because a lot of people jump over the step of getting to the point where they can really, you know, write to be competitive as far as, you know, sending something in for queries that they give them a product that, you know, might impress somebody, which I got my agent. If I wrote it 10 years earlier, I probably would, you know, would have given up at the application process. <laughs> uh, but I, I just was rough on myself. And I just kept saying, not good enough, not good enough. Finally, about over that ten-year period, and I wasn't writing it the whole time. I just kept trying. Mm-hmm. At the end, I uh, I read like the fourth draft of that first one, and I realized that I was just reading it, you know, like it was a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I said, okay, it's ready. So that, that's why I said, don't jump over the step of really polishing and really working on your craft. How do you find a way to balance uh, one of the things that one of the reasons why people love your books is because you put so much Florida, you know, history and Florida culture in there and uh, and, and, you know, in between the mayhem. Um, um, how much how much research do you have to do? For instance, in the first one, you ended up at game seven of or surge ended up at game seven of the of the World Series at, at, <laughs> in nineteen ninety seven. Were you there? Did you or did you research that or you know? Yeah, I was there. And uh, what happened was, <laughs> um, I, I had a friend who uh, who was at a convention in Palm Beach, and I had the plot. I, I had written the prologue, and I had the plot all written out, and I had the, the route that they could take to Florida. So what I did is just, and I couldn't wait to get started. So I took the trip all the way. You know, from from uh, Tampa up to Cocoa Beach, then down the whole East Coast to Key West, and you know, I met up with my friend in Palm Beach, and it just so happened that the uh, and this is how taking the trip and going. I mean, 
I've got to go to the places in the books, and I've got to I've got to almost drive through the route of the plot because things will happen, mm-hmm. and I'll see things that I never would have otherwise you know known to mention, and it, and it makes it fresh in your mind. It makes it colorful. We get down, and I remember it was uh, we were in Clamata uh, Street in, in West Palm Beach um, the night game six. And they said, you know, if the Marlins went tonight, you know, game seven's tomorrow. So we went down, you know, everybody was parked. The game was about to start. There was one scalper left. And I actually had this in the book. But, uh, you know, we were looking to see if we could scalp tickets. And he uh, he had two tickets. And my friend who was on the passenger side, uh, he didn't know the whole how to deal with, you know, scalpers or whatever. And he goes, how much? And he goes, a buck each. And so my friend thought, uh, he just wants to go home. He's, he's already made his money. He's just disgusted with the whole process. And, <laughs> and so my friend gets two $1 bills. His, you know, it's $100 each. A buck each is 100 And he gives him two $1 bills. <laughs> and the guy looks at him like, like are, you, you know, like, are you insulting me or something? And he goes, no, man, my 100 is a buck. And so my friend said, said a buck for both. And the guy goes, okay. So we went to the seventh game for 50 bucks each. Wow, that's reasonable. (laughs) Wow, good for you. I ran into Dave Barry in the liquor (laughs) line. You know, I'm not published or anything. You know, I just saw Dave Barry. So I asked somebody for a pen. Hey, can I borrow a pen? And I got the pen, and I I was hyper like Serge. I was pacing because the game we were were behind. (laughs) And I got out my my ticket, and I ran up up to Dave. And I go, Dave, 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 hey, can you sign me a ticket? You know, and I was so effervescent that he just kind of took a step back so <laughs> so in the book um they weren't even we weren't even going to go to the seventh game the seventh game became like a, a preliminary climax you know there was like mm-hmm. a pre-climax and so the seventh game because of the trip i took that got in there the scalper got in there surge <laughs> meeting dave barry got in there <laughs> <laughs> the surge was so nuts that when dave took like a step back or whatever uh, uh, Coleman's waiting. He got his ticket signed. He goes, "I'm happy." He goes, well, how, "How was Dave?" And he goes, well, "I didn't realize he has a nervous condition." <laughs> <laughs> now you shout out a number of, of Florida writers in your books, like in *Tropic of Stupid*. You, there's a shout out to uh, your good friend Randy Wayne White, right? <laughs> do, do you guys have now. Do you guys have a long-term feud going there, or or what is that? We, we have a long-term make-believe feud for uh, <laughs> for stuff. Is uh, I went to Joanne Sinchuk's store, you know, in Delray Beach, and I went. I went in the bathroom, and I looked, and there was Randy wrote some graffiti on the wall about me, you know, like you know, for mediocre time, call one eight hundred surge, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and and I stuck my head out. Joanne was in the back doing something, preparing for the signing that night. And I go, hey, what's this? You know, Randy. And, you know, and he goes, oh, man, I, I, should have, I, was, I was meaning to tell you that, yeah, he did that. And I said, give me a magic marker. Yeah. <laughs> and so she goes, oh, this is great. And I, and I took it. And so I put an arrow to what he wrote. And I, I wrote, uh, hey, remember your book, you know, 12 mile limit? It should have been 12 word limit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we continue this. Well, and, and do you guys have. I, I remember hearing about this at Midtown Reader in Tallahassee. They're the ones that told me about this feud between oh, you guys. Yeah, that we did that. And then I was of a, uh, you know, they have the big posters of like Barnes and Noble or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I drew like one of those snidely whiplash uh, mm-hmm. 
mustaches on his poster. And, um, you know, the crowd enjoyed it. because oh, there's his poster. He's going next week. Because when I told that story, they pointed. And I go, ah, and I, I'll just do stuff impromptu in front of the audience and stuff. And anyway, I heard they took it down uh, they were, before he came because they were afraid, you know, that he'd be insulted or something. <laughs> no, they didn't know what we got, you know. In all of those travels around the state, all that uh, windshield time researching these books, is there a, a hidden gem that maybe even longtime Florida residents won't know about that you've uncovered that, that we should make our way, uh, make a point to see? I don't know. A lot of the hidden gems is just knowing this stuff is gone, you know. And uh, like I discovered the loop road that goes down off of the Everglades and and I uh, I just I started hearing stuff about it, and I've got a bunch of National Geographics, and uh, so I I found one. I couldn't find any information on it. I found I pulled it off my shelf, and it had a couple pages on it. And it had uh, Irvin Rouse who wrote the Orange Blossom Special. He lived down there, and there was um, Al Capone had a place during Prohibition down there, just over the Dade Line, uh, then Dade County, and. Uh, it really is hard to find. And um, if you come in from one direction, you got to come during the dry season because, you know, the road is just ridiculous. It's, it's just the bumpiest. It will, it washes out every year and then the state or the national park comes in and fixes it up. But there's also a, a legendary place called the Gator Hook Lounge. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's pictures of it when it, it burned down, but, I went out there and I found that I found the uh, the remnants of Al Capone's place and you know where the gator hook was and I and I met Lucky Cole who uh, actually became a character in the book. He's a he's a he's a photographer that lives out on the road and he's got like this uh, he's got this this little funky compound that is just so out there. <laughs> I mean I mean it is so remote hang out there around the fire pit at night and stuff like that. That's just a matter of getting out. And I was staying in Everglades City, and I just followed the breadcrumb trail. <laughs> you know, and I was just talking. I was having dinner. You know, I was having a, you know, in the seafood depot, which is the Barry Collier's end-of-the-line railroad, you know, which doesn't run anymore, obviously. And I was talking to some locals, and I said, I, I was down at the Lebo's Rock Bottom Bar, uh, just for the causeway, the Chocolosky. And I saw some of the photos you know, of Lucky up there. And I said, yeah, I said, I figure out if I could find his place and meet him. And somebody said, hey, I got him right here on speed dial. <laughs> this is stuff that just, I can't emphasize if you're going to do location-based writing is put in, you know, buy the tires, you know, <laughs> wear up that rubber and just drive, go into places and talk yeah. to people. What I, what, yeah, and it really helps your fiction, I think, in that you've got these outlandish plots and, and wild characters, but you've got this very real setting, you know, and to, that sort of grounds the whole plot. Uh, in in uh, Tropic of Stupid, you, you, at one point, your characters are at the uh, Crocodile Lake National Wildlife Refuge, and then the missile silo, the abandoned missile silo that's there, and I'm reading it going, hey, I've been there. I know what they're talking about. This is great. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just off the road. You'd never know. You know, you kind of, I guess you kind of see them. I think I've seen them. I've, just, I've seen them from Google Earth. I you know, mm-hmm. went around and found exactly, you know, where the silos, you know, the abandoned, you know, missile batteries were. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that stuff is laying all around. 
and um, people are just, you know, busy with their lives and just zooming down the highway, and you don't know what's all around. That's what I like. It's just what you, you know, you might even be right there at a cool place, mm-hmm. but you, you'll, you'll fly right by I'll it. Drive right by it, yeah. Are there really that many, uh, you, you, in, in a lot of these books, there are, like, Surge meets women who are really into Florida history, too, and they wind up uh, having a uh, an intimate encounter. Are there really that many women that into Florida history and culture like that? I, I would, well, I mean, if you want to just divide it in two and just talk about <laughs> interest in history and culture. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you, I mean, I do a lot of book events and I, and I go around and, and you can imagine the people who would come in person to want to attend one of these, you're going to have um, a significant proportion of people who really love Florida history and travel and, you know, and nostalgia. And people come up you know, talk to you afterwards. And, uh, you know, I had Serge um, at, at night, he breaks into Cypress Gardens, you know, because there's, <laughs> there's the Florida pool, you know, that's mm-hmm. way up and people don't, a lot of people go to, go to Cypress Gardens and never see it because it's the very end of the property and it's not really a uh, an attraction anymore. It just happens to be there. And if you just walk, you can walk there. It's not fenced off or anything. MGM uh, built the pool for the, the Esther Williams movie, Easy to Love, right? <laughs> and uh, so Serge, he's like in a fugue state or whatever. And he uh, he jumps into the pool at night and he's doing the backstroke. He's, he's thinking he's Esther Williams. And, and he's doing his little thing. Well, I did that reading. The book had just come out. I did that reading. And it, anyway, there was, a, there was a woman in the audience happened to just read that thing. And he goes, I was in that movie. You know, because around, around the edge, you know, how there's all those, you know, anonymous, you know, supporting, you know, swimmers. Yeah. Who are kicking and, and synchronization, you know, and they wearing the little, you know, shower caps. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I, I was, you know, I, she was really into it. She participated and that's cool for me because then i get to talk to somebody who's there in real time i, I was going to ask you about uh the pope of palm beach where you actually sent serge on a book tour in place of the actual author how much of that was drawn from from real life because a lot of that was really crazy but also kind of rang true it was pretty much true <laughs> i just took my experiences and put them on top of Serge, you know except for the the bad guys coming in you know and and, and all that uh, that had to do with the, the crime plot, but but I had a lot of you know just things that ha- happened to surge interacting with readers and bookstores and this and that and, and uh, you know most of that actually happened. So I I, I said I've got you know, I was thinking I get the book tours are so rich you know in their own. I mean it's like when I was a reporter you know the things that happen on the book tour are about as interesting and that that's not even counting you know the the economy motels I stay in. <laughs> like, I, I'm not going to do it anymore. I mean, I, I've, I have beat the odds as far as having anything really seriously bad happen at these places. But, the, uh, the, I, I recognized in Tropic of Stupid, I think, uh, one of your, a story you had told about about seeing uh, seeing the, the people from Cops filming while you're... <laughs> <laughs> In one of the one of the motels, that is that's yeah, that's true. I had I, I saw the police come in. I, I was getting in my room, and I think I was going to go get something, you know, some, get the vending machine. Waffle House. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, so I, was, I walked in my room, and the police rushed in, and you know, and they 
get out all ready, prepared, you know, with their guns drawn, you know, around this one room. It's like three down from mine. And then I, this light comes on because I'm walking backwards like, holy cow, this is happening right now. And um, light comes on. These guys start screaming at me. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. I turn around. And these guys don't stop for nothing. This is the film crew from cops. So they came flying in. <laughs> and I jumped out of the way because, I mean, they're, they're running with all that big, heavy equipment. So basically, I went next door uh, to watch the rest of it up in Waffle House because you know, the Waffle House was up on a little berm. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was pretty packed, but people weren't sitting down. They're all at the window, you know, watching, you know, <laughs> and, and they came in and they said, what's happening? You know, and I'm like, oh, they're just, you know, cops or whatever. And I said, yeah, you know, we've been watching the whole thing. As soon as we saw, you know, the camera lights came on, you know, everybody's in the window swaying back and forth going, you know, bad boys, bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> That's a classic Florida experience right there. <laughs> Absolutely. You're not going to get that, you know, at, you know, double treat, you know. It's, it's... <laughs> <laughs> what is it uh, about Florida that, that outsiders who mock the state and, and Florida man and all the jokes miss about this state, which makes people like yourself love it so much and choose to stay? Well, on the serious side, it's it, the beauty is just intoxicating, and the nature. I mean, I I take trips, and I you know kind of always know where the you know local park, and I have this app on my phone that'll find you know any trails, you know, and I I, I just spend time hitting state parks. If you come down here, you get it. You know, I mean, it's all. You know, Duval Street and, you know, Ocean Drive in Miami, that's all fun and good. But, you know, you, you got to get out of the bar districts and, and find the nature. You know, I mean, I'm, and I'll, I'll go over and over again. I can't, you know, it, it doesn't get old. I go down to, if I'm in Miami, I might go down to Key Biscayne, you know, go down to Cape, Florida, that state park, fill bags, and, uh, you know, climb the lighthouse again. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you just can't run out of uh, the natural beauty. Tropic of Stupid is like a is like a, a tourist brochure for Mayaka River State Park because there's so much of that in there. Yeah, I needed to put him somewhere, and that's the state park I know the best. I've been going there forever um, since uh, the '80s to date myself. You know, I was working on my photography and stuff, and I kind of combed that park pretty well. It's interesting you mentioned that because we've got a, a sponsorship with Visit Sarasota and, and bring up Mayaka River State Park all of the time. So what is it about there that uh, attracts you more than any other of the, the wonderful parks around the state? You're just so removed from the handprint of, you know, humans you know, on, the, on the planet. I mean, there's you know, except for the road you're on you know, you're going through canopies and there's all kinds of, you know, just every kind of palm tree. You know, there's just various fields where, you know, Coryopsis will bloom sometimes in a big blanket of yellow. You walk around and you'll, you'll see all kinds of, you know, you'll, you'll go down paths and there might be a deer, you know, somewhere or, uh, oh my gosh, if you go to the right time of day and you look out on the lake, you'd be shocked at how many alligators are around you. You can go a million times, but it's because of the temperature right around dawn, mm-hmm. you know, when you get your first glimpse of the lake. And it's like that James Bond movie where he ran across the thing on the backs of alligators. It just—it's just like there's thousands. I mean, it's unbelievable. How much work do you put into devising the various ways that Surge kills people? I mean, do you? 
Because some of them are really elaborate. I mean, I, you know. Well, I, I, I still remember the one with the jeans from Florida Roadkill. That's that one's real vivid in my memory. I'm, I'm working on one right now. I can't, but I'm like in the middle of it. You know, I mean, I just mm-hmm. got to the point where I have to I have setup scenes. So because it's 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 really bizarre, and I think people like it. But you can't just have like all of a sudden out of the blue, he's got this weird stuff. We came up with this weird idea. You know, I threw about three references I've set up to why he, it's almost like, uh, but I'm working on it and I lay in bed at night and I got my clipboard, you know, and I can write in the dark. Sometimes I write big because I wake up next morning. That was the most brilliant idea. Now I can't read it. <laughs> well, it's a variation on Chekhov's gun, you know, mm-hmm. if you introduce the gun and you got to fire it, whatever. I kind of look at it in reverse where if you're going to fire a gun here, you have to introduce the gun back here. You know what I mean? And uh, so I just finished all the introduction scenes. And now the fun part is uh, where I, uh, I I nab the guy who's been bothering some people very severely, <laughs> some older people, and puts one in the hospital and uh, finds out that he's done this to other in other cities. And so he's just been accosted by Serge. And uh, so... That's what I'm looking forward to. It's going to be a fun <laughs> afternoon writing. <laughs> the Pope of Palm Beach feels like your most personal book because it, it talks a lot about childhood in Riviera Beach and growing up there. Were a lot of those experiences that you read related in there, were those yours? Y- yes, they, I mean, they were. And um, mm-hmm. I love growing up in Riviera Beach. And I, when don't really get around to this, you know, people ask you at book signings about your childhood and your early Florida memories and stuff. And a lot of people, you know, say, you know it's, it's a cliche. You're like, oh, I had a terrible childhood. Oh, this and that. And <laughs> I had a great childhood. I mean, and it was perfect time and place because, you know, if you're a kid, you know, now it'd be too dangerous. But, you know, I was just a young kid and I had a banana bike. And that was my ticket to freedom. And I just rode all of the creation. <laughs> you know, it was just like, it was just like a Florida version of Huck's Pin. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had a little basket and I could, I'd take my little fishing box and go down to the Blue Heron Bridge and fish off of that and go down to the baseball field and just I mean I I really get to the whole area. And that's the other thing. You know, you can see, travel around, you know, and see all these, you know, great places. I mean it was a it was a great upbringing. You know, I just I mean I have so many memories. I remember, you know, like uh in the summer, you know, all the neighbors would cut their lawn, you get that smell of the St. Augustine grass, the freshly cut, you know, be in the air. And but the big thing I think would help out is no gadgets, you know, kids didn't have gadgets, you know, you, you had to go outside and like, you know, breathe the fresh air and, uh, and just actually, you know, do uh, stuff, entertain yeah, yourself, mm-hmm. have a reality instead of, <laughs> in front of a game box, go, go have experience real life. <laughs> when was the first time you realized Florida was weird? Looking back, it was weird the whole time I was growing up. I just didn't realize <laughs> it because I had no you know comparison. You know, that mm-hmm. was just my baseline of reality uh, with all the strange things that happened. And um, I mean, the first strange thing that happened was, um, was totally normal. Um, the hurricane bets at 65 and uh, it was Labor Day. And this Greek freighter tried to make the port of Palm Beach. They were like two miles short, couldn't make <laughs> it. And if you if you look online, you know, I mean, there's all this nostalgia. because the hurricane. It was a huge freighter. And it drove it way up the beach. I mean, I mean, it wasn't just 
it didn't just get grounded in like shallow water because it was really deep. I mean, the prow of the boat was way up there. And because of customs, the, the Greek sailors had to stay on the boat. They're playing, you know, instruments and music at night and, and they're stuck on the boat. And then I read later, you know, it's like, and then two of them had it. And, and, and uh, you know, I guess the authorities didn't see them and they, 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 they jumped off the boat and they, they, they made their way to Memphis for whatever reason. They wanted to go to Memphis, I guess, to see Elvis. Elvis, yeah. <laughs> but this was just this was just the background noise of my childhood. You know, stuff like that happening. Yeah, that's uh, probably the first time I realized was looking back in retrospect at uh, memories. Is there anybody coming along now that is following in your footsteps and Carl Hyacinth's footsteps and writing the writing wacky Florida? Well, Crime books. I, I don't. I don't know. I kind of follow Satchel Page's advice. You know, don't look back. <laughs> something might be gaining on you. you know, I, I'm just keeping my nose down right now. And uh, that's the thing is, you read stuff. You know, it's like Carl. He said, "Where do you get your ideas?" I go, Psh. "It's in." You know, most Floridians would know that answer. You know, I just read the newspaper. And it's yeah. Like, just I, make sure you change the names. That's about it. <laughs> I don't change names. I just. No. <laughs> <laughs> You got oh, a question about that, but go on, go on. Yeah. I'm sorry. What about that? Well, I, I was going to ask you about names. Uh, uh, I wrote a story about the last days of Derby Lane here in St. Petersburg. And the guy who runs the place said, oh, yeah, Tim Dorsey used to come out here and get the names of the gamblers and use that in his books. <laughs> <laughs> Did somebody really say that? Yeah. Yeah. The guy running Derby Lane, the, the you know, the, the Greyhound track in, in, uh, in St. Petersburg. A claim that you took the names of the gamblers and worked them into your fiction. I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, I, I remember um, I was writing about Derby Lane, and I had to because uh, you know the the names of like a, you know at a horse track or are the names of the dogs at a dog track are so unusual. You know they're yeah. they're they're more bizarre than you know anything you could just make up. So I, I grabbed the newspaper that I looked at the entries at Derby Lane that day and. Um, like in the eighth race, Triggerfish Twist, which was, you know, there's no, there's no way to say that's a coincidence. But uh, so I, I tuned in that night and it lost, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, what I was going to say was, uh, yeah, you have to remember to notice because Florida, you know, you, you just get so jaded, you know, as far as, and um, I remember, and this happened like right near uh, one of my elementary schools where I grew up and it was, um, it was, I did change the name here. Just wasn't, you know, I didn't have to change the name. I just did it anyway to make it more universal, but it was, uh, it's, it was a Wendy's that has since been built close to my elementary school. And I'm reading the article and a guy just the article, like they, they had to do follow-up articles, I guess, to explain what happened. But, uh, they had a report, you know, a guy just drove up the drive through and threw an alligator through the window and yes. everybody just freaked out, you know, and started running around, you know, and he just took off, you know, and it's, I mean, you want to talk about your senseless crime, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but I was reading the newspaper and I, and I read that and I was like, you know, in my, <laughs> my head, you're just like, yeah, sure. Why not? I just turned the page. <laughs> and he was, and, and he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, the, the gator being the deadly weapon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Follow, but then I got like three pages later, and I go, "Wait a second. And I went back, <laughs> I got my scissors, and I cut that because the stuff I've heard, you know, like a guy actually tried to um, 
I mean, I, I'd seen stuff like that before. Like a guy down in Miami area went in and uh, he got like a six pack of beer and he tried to trade a baby mm-hmm. alligator, you know, with the person behind the counter, you know, <laughs> and it's like, what, what made you think that had a chance, you know, but, <laughs> but I've seen stuff, convenience stores or fast food restaurants, like the, the naked women that were, it was McDonald's or I don't know what it was, but she was somehow she just ran in naked and then started like putting her mouth underneath the spigots for the drinks. You know, and I think she went to the ice cream machine and everything's standing back calling the police, you know, it's a never ending bombardment. You, have, you actually have to, you know, you have to, you have to pick carefully. Well, yeah, the like Tropic of Stupid begins with, the addicts who were warming their urine in the convenience store microwave <laughs> and then saying, well, it's okay. It's not mine. <laughs> it's, it's, I got it from somebody else. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's actually a true story. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you put something in people, you know, I get the strangest thing is, is that people I'll get criticized for being too outlandish or being too, <laughs> you know, trying too hard to come up with crazy stuff. And I find that, I mean, that's just amusing to me personally because it's always the true stuff. That they'll say it you go too far. And, uh, and then other people will say, okay, I know you use real stuff, but you know, you'd be interviewed, but this one absolutely has to be made up. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. This has been great. I enjoyed it. By the way, the next book in January, it's called uh, Mermaid Confidential. Oh, what a great title. <laughs> will, we go- will we be going to, to Wikiwachi Springs? Uh, actually, no. Uh, no, there's some mermaid references down in the Keys. Okay. Uh, and some billboards and some signs and stuff like that. So you know, that's where that's where it'll mainly take a place. Okay. Tim All Dorsey right. has been our guest, timdorsey.com. For more information, anywhere you buy books, uh, online or in person, they will have Tim Dorsey. Check it out. It's worth your time. And uh, you'll be appearing at the Miami Book Fair. So we'll look forward that's to great. that, too. Hey, thank you, guys. I- Appreciate it. It's been fun. Craig, you asked him an interesting question uh, towards the end that I'm going to throw back at you. When did you first realize that Florida was, to put it mildly, different? When I went to college in Alabama. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Pensacola and I thought it was perfectly fine that, you know, that we had politicians named the Bandy Rooster uh, who made money selling <laughs> hula hoops and that. We had a house out at the beach that was shaped like a UFO and, you know, uh, uh, that the day it was bring your kid, let the kids shadow the Pensacola City Councilman happened to be the day they were also debating whether to allow Oak Calcutta to be shown <laughs> at, the, at the auditorium. I thought that was all perfectly normal. And then I went to, to college at Troy State in Troy, Alabama, and things were completely different. And I was like, OK, maybe maybe not everywhere is like Florida, maybe maybe. Other places are boring because it was pretty dull in Troy. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, uh, what really kind of sealed the deal was uh, the legislature one year accidentally let uh, lapse the requirement that everybody who wanted to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I'm sorry, had to had to have had to register with the state and pass tests and stuff like that. So anybody could get to be a psychologist by just buying uh, an occupational license, a business license, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so people were buying those, you know, for their dogs and stuff like that. So I went and bought one and took it back to Troy with me, and put it on a thing over my desk that said, "Please see the nurse to sign in," because somebody had left mm-hmm. that in the sign shop. And people were coming by, going, "Are you really a psychologist?" <laughs> oh yeah, in Florida, I am officially a psychologist. 
how did you get to be a psychologist? I said, because that's the way we roll in Florida, baby. <laughs> Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>